Well, this morning we come back to our studies in the book of Romans, and we've been in Romans chapter 2. And um, again, it's one of the real problems in understanding the letters of the New Testament, the letters of the Apostle Paul in particular, is that we don't know all of the situation and circumstances that was behind the reasons that Paul sat down and took a quill in hand and uh, put it ink to, to parchment and uh, wrote these letters and sent them off to the churches. Again, I think, think of Richard Hayes' statement that we are reading somebody else's mail. <laughs> this is mail that was sent to the Roman Christians and um, Paul knew the problems in the church and they knew the problems in the church but we are at a great distance from um, the time that Paul wrote these letters. We know that there was some problem that was in the Roman church that had to do with ethnic distinctions, uh, Jewish, Jew, Jews and Gentiles. It's something that it gets emphasized over and over again in uh, the letter. In fact, in uh, chapter 1 and in chapter 2, we have an expression where Paul speaks of to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's unparalleled. You don't have that in any other of Paul's letters. And the great question is, why does he speak in that way? Why does he say that in the gospel there is a righteousness of God from faith to faith? Um, I'm sorry, he says that, um, um, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And you would think, well, it's a great statement. It's a true statement. Everyone that believes the gospel is God's power for salvation. Why does he bring in at that point to the Jew first and also to the Greek? Why does he speak of the priority of the Jew and then the Greeks come in uh, after the, the Jew? And, and then in chapter 2, there is also a similar statement that's found um, with respect not here to salvation, but here to the matter of um, the judgment. Uh, he says there will be tribulation, distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Salvation is a priority for the Jew. Judgment is also a priority for the Jew. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you know, we can just make surmises. We could just try to fill in the details with um, what we think might be behind these words. But I find it interesting that he uses that expression only here in the Roman letter. And he uses that expression first with reference to salvation and then with reference to judgment. And I was thinking about that. Why does he do that? Well, certainly with respect to salvation, to say that there is a priority to the Jew, that would undercut any thought on the part of the Gentiles at the church at Rome that they did not have a spiritual debt to the Jew. They possess a spiritual debt to the Jew. They can't discount God's revelation to Israel, and they cannot discount the reality of the Jews being the heirs of the promise. They were the custodians of the word. And he speaks in chapter 3, also in chapter 9, 
of the advantages to the Jew. What advantages do they have? Well, much every way. And Paul gives a whole list of advantages that the Jew possessed as being a bearer of the word of God, being the one through whom the Messiah came. Christ came according to the flesh. Um, many advantages they had in terms of the covenant and the promise and the worship and all the rest that was given unto Israel so that the Gentiles in the congregation can't just say, well, uh, look, most of the Jews didn't believe in Jesus, so let's just think of them in terms of enemies. Now, Paul can speak of those who were the enemies of the cross of Christ, and he can say they're part of the concision, part of the circumcision, that actually are mutilators. They're not really anything that has to do with uh, blessing that comes through circumcision. It's concision, he says, mutilators. Um, and he probably has in his mind many in the synagogue that opposed the gospel. But yet he could speak of those very same people in terms where he says, of whom I've told you before and tell you now weeping. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. He doesn't say with bitterness. He doesn't say with anti-Semitic hatred of the Jew. He says, of whom I tell you now weeping. And so, you know, whatever we think of the history of the church, in, in a lot of ways it's appalling, the way the church treated the Jew through the centuries. Um, and again, we can say it wasn't the church, it was just professing Christians, we can make all the caveats along those lines. It still was appalling that anything associated with the name of Jesus Christ would have bare bitterness and hatred and the blood libels and all the rest that was said about the Jews um, just simply as an excuse for hatred. And Paul says that cannot stand. Paul says that has nothing at all to do with the revelation that God, God has given in Jesus Christ because this gospel came from the Jews. It's interesting, Jesus does the same thing with respect to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Remember that passage in John chapter 4? When Jesus met the woman at the well, and here again you have a problem with ethnicity that divided the Jews from the Samaritans. We told the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The Samaritans had no dealings with the Jews. I think they fought a war that actually brought their temple to destruction uh, earlier on. Um, but you have Jesus breaking the boundaries and going through Samaria. And the scripture tells us he, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Why do you have to pass through Samaria? I know there's lots of places I have to pass through just because there's a Starbucks there. But there was nothing there that motivated Jesus to go through Samaria. It was the woman at the well. Is the reason he had to go through Samaria. It was his mercy and grace to this woman whom he would meet that brought him to have to go through Samaria, through the very area of the ancient land of, of Israel where there was this mixed race people. There's people that didn't worship like the Jews worshipped. They had their temple on, on Mount Gerizim. Uh, they had um, only the belief in the first five books of Moses. They discounted the rest of God's counsel. Um, and Jesus enters into this conversation asking her for water. Give me a drink. The Samaritan woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? In parentheses, John asks, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus then offers her living water. If you knew the gift of God, who it is to say to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And they get into this conversation about living water. 
And um, Jesus then calls her to tells her to call her husband in, in verse 16. He tells her, she says, I have no husband. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands. The one you're now living with is, is, is not even your husband. What you've said is true. She perceives he's a prophet. And on the basis of his prophetic um, uh, identity, she wants him to settle a question. Settle a question that exists between the Jews and the Samaritans. There's not only this ethnic divide, there's not only this theological divide, there's a worship divide. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Speaking of Mount Gerizim. You say, that is you Jews say, in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He had something very, very interesting. It's kind of like uh, Jesus is looking now to say, I've given you this concession that um, it's not Jerusalem, but it's not even this mountain. Um, But you have to realize that as a Samaritan woman, in the matter of this question of where's the proper place to worship, uh, the Jews understand much better than you guys do because they have the totality of the revelation of God in the Old Testament that did appoint Jerusalem as the place where the temple was to be built. And so Jesus says, you, do not, you worship what you do not know. You worship in ignorance. This uh, Gerizim worship, the temple that was at Gerizim, in fact, that now at this point, because of the war, the temple no longer existed, but the Samaritans still worshiped in the place where their ancient temple had been. We worship what we know. The Jews worship in the right place. That settles the question as to where the right place was to worship. It is Jerusalem. And then he adds this. He says, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, the salvation that's from the Jews is to come to the Samaritans. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And I'm unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Samaritans are going to be included in the salvation of God, but it's a salvation that comes from Jerusalem. It's a salvation that comes from Israel. Salvation is from the Jews. And so Paul wants the Romans to be aware of that. That historically, God called this nation to be his nation and gave promises to the fathers of that nation. And now is fulfilling those promises in a new Israel, but yet it's a new Israel. It's not a new Gentile world. I mean, that's going to get renewed, but it's going to be renewed through the progress of a new Israel that God is forming out of 12 no longer patriarchs, but now 12 apostles who all come from, they all come from the Jewish ancestry. They are part of the Jewish nation and they form a new Israel. God's making a new Israel with these Jewish people. And this gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. Later on in the book of Romans, Paul wants to um, receive the offering for the, um, I believe it's here in Romans chapter 15, where he he makes the argument that um, they had received the benefit of spiritual things, and hence the people in Jerusalem ought to receive their earthly things or material things. Uh, Look at it, verse 25 of chapter 15. He says, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, meaning the Christians in Jerusalem, from Macedonia and Achaia. Again, these are um, 
Roman provinces, uh, Macedonia being modern, um, well, that modern area in the, in the Balkans, and Macedonia is even a country today. Achaia is part of Greece, down to the Peloponnese, where uh, Corinth was. Uh, they've been pleased to make uh, some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. They owe it to them. Why in the world did these people in Macedonia and Achaia owe it to the saints in Jerusalem to make a contribution for the poor of Jerusalem? Don't they have enough poor in Macedonia? Don't they have enough poor people in Achaia uh, to, to take care of? Well, it says they owe it to them, Paul says, for if the Gentiles, that's uh, you people in Rome largely, people in Corinth, the people in Philippi, and Thessalonica, which were all the cities of Macedonia, if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now, in the Corinthian letter, he makes an argument by way of equality. They're poor now, you've got abundance, you give to them, so the time when you're poverty-stricken and they have abundance, they may give to you. I mean, there's equality in this thing, but there's also priority in understanding that the blessings of salvation did come from Israel. And so anti-Semitism has no place in the church. This is just basically the point. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. But on the other hand, you have the problem with Jewish pride. You have the problem of Jewish hatred, anti-Semitism, but you also have the problem of Jewish pride, of Jews who think that because we have the temple, because we have the law, because we have the blessings of the promise of Messiah, that we're cut above everyone else and we're better than everybody else, that because we're the children of Abraham, um, we're, we're, we're fine. Of course, John the Baptist says God's able to raise up from stones children to Abraham um, but they, so there's much in the scripture that looks to level that kind of arrogance, that kind of pride and this is a letter that does that very thing, but does that very thing not to the place wherever it's, it's envisioned that bitterness toward the Jews would ever seize the heart of God's people Regard, respect, thanksgiving, appreciation, what God has done through Israel should be the portion of the believer in reference to Israel. But then with reference to Israel, they need to be humbled, yes, to the Jew first, there's priority. With reference to salvation coming to Israel, from Israel, to the nations. But to whom much is given, of them much will be required. So in chapter 2, what does he say? He says that priority even exists in terms of judgment. Judgment begins at the house of God. Judgment begins with those that receive the word of God. And and in judgment to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Let's look at the language again. Um, Paul says in verse uh, 9. Verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, there will be tribulation and distress. For every human being who does evil, the Jew first. The Jew first. The Jew is going to come before God first in terms of judgment because they've been given the blessings, they've been given the privilege, they've been given the light, they've been given the promises. And if they have not... uh, 
receive those promises, if they've not used those promises wisely and well, uh, they will be in the vanguard of God's uh, righteous judgment that will come against those who have not embraced the gospel. So, again, there's much for the Jew to be regarded with regard, respect to, no grounds for hatred, no grounds for bitterness in this whole matter of this ethnic division existing in the church at Rome. But on the other hand, there's no pride either. There's nobody going around saying, well, we're better because we're, we're Jews. Yeah, okay, salvation came, but also judgment comes to you guys first. So there's much to be hum- humbled about. And then with respect to what Paul argues, with respect to those who have sinned without the law, will perish without the law, verse 12, who sinned under the law, will be judged by the law. Again, that's a Jewish-Gentile distinction. Without the law, by the law. The Jews who had the law of God uh, will perish being judged by the law. Those who have per- will, per- will perish without the law will, will perish, yes, but um, not by the law. It won't be the law that will condemn them. It will be their own failure um, to keep what he calls the, the, um, the law um, by nature. Um, by nature, they do what the law requires. Uh, it shows a work of the law. It's written in their hearts. They're moral creatures. They're made in God's image. They have a sense of right and wrong. They have a sense of justice and injustice. They have a sense of beauty. They have a sense of you know, just all the things that uh, God impresses upon the heart of moral creatures made in His image and made in His likeness. And yet they don't live up to that. They don't even live up to the standards of what they themselves know to be right and good and true. And hence... If there was a law given that could make us righteous, we would have righteousness come by the law. But there's no law given that can make us righteous because we're lawbreakers. We violate the commandments as soon as they're issued. Or we're tempted to. And with respect to the heart and conscience, we know ourselves uh, to be sinners. Now up to this point, Paul has been speaking about Jewish-Gentile relations But he's been addressing it in terms of a general observation of the conditions of all people everywhere. He's not really focused in upon the Jew to the expense of the Gentile until you come to chapter 17. Now he's going to lower the boom. He's going to lower the guns upon um, the Jew. And again, the argument of the Jews is, now these Gentiles that don't have the law are just simply wicked, immoral, reprobates. And yet Paul says they're still moral creatures and by nature they do the things that the law requires. So you just can't discount them altogether is that there can't be much concern about them because they're Gentile dogs would have nothing to do with. They're image bearers of God and they validate that image because they have moral sensibilities. And hence the gospel's to go to them and we're to love them and we're to not just preach the gospel to Jews only, which is what the church was doing at the outset. This gospel needs to go to the ends of the world and there can't be on the part of Jewish people this sense of superiority so that we just simply exclude the Gentiles. And so Paul's now going to humble the the Jew. Humble the Jew. Um, If the Gentiles can keep God's law, even though they don't have the law, you have the law. You often live like Gentiles. You often are disobedient to the law. You often are no better than the Gentiles because you know better and you do not do the things you know. 
And so he says in verse 17, and I'm just going to read it to you, uh, down to verse uh, 24. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what's excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those that are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That's the Jewish boast. That's the Jewish boast. That's how they see themselves. That's how they view themselves. That's their self-understanding. This is who we are. This is what makes us better. This is what makes us superior to those Gentile dogs. Paul then addresses them who have this confidence. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by the breaking of the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now let me just say, first of all, what Paul's not saying. Paul's not saying that lots of Jews just simply ignore the law altogether. But there are some who do. There are some who do. And by implication, uh, where some do these things in Israel and seem to do it with a high hand and seem to do it being tolerated as good Jews in the community, maybe some of them are, 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 are cast out of the synagogue, but probably not. You know, you either do it or you consent with those to do it. That's, that's the judgment earlier on. Um, and then also, he's not saying that this is, this is something that is only true of Jews. He's not saying Jews alone are hypocrites because they preach one thing and live another way. He's not saying every Jew does it to the extent... And in, other, in other words, not every Jew is an adulterer. Not every Jew is robbing temples. Not every Jew is a thief and stealing. But yet it's happening, even where the law is present. And it's tolerated in many places, even where the law is present. Um, and you consent with those, uh, maybe someone in your family who's a thief and, a, and a, an adulterer, and uh, yet you protect them. You're implicated in the reality that in Israel, there's not necessarily a greater performance of morality than among the Gentile nations. The Gentile nations sometimes do the things that the law requires. And you in Israel many times do the things that the law doesn't require, or the, the law forbids. You, you're doing those things. So you're not any better, and you can't boast, and you can't make your confidence in the fact that well, we are possessors of divine law. If you call yourself a Jew, now who, what is a Jew? Well, Jews, it, it, it comes from the, the, uh, the word for Judah. Um, that was, of course, the southern kingdom in the Old Testament um, that was the tribe uh, of the kings, the tribe of David and um, at the time of the Babylonian captivity uh, the people of the land uh, the people of Judah came to be called Jews and the word itself because remember when Judah was born Judah was one of the sons of, of, um, of Jacob and when he was born uh, I believe uh, the expression was uh, that uh, the mother praised the Lord. And Judah meant 
the praise of the Lord. Yahweh be praised. Yahweh be praised. And so a true Jew is someone who lives to the praise of God. But you call yourself a praiser of God. You call yourself a Jew. And you rely on the law. That's where your reliance rests. He's not saying the law is a bad thing. The law has many qualities in it that are most important and useful and helpful. The law is holy, just and good, he's going to say in chapter 7. But here's what you do. You rely on the law. The law is your hope. The law is your savior. The law you think is the instrument by which you will be right with God. You think you got the blessing of God because you have the law. And then the law comes and condemns you for your sins. And then you make your boast in God. And you know his will. This is how you view yourself. You, we know God's will. We know it completely. We know it fully. We know it comprehensively. Oh, fine, but again, the question still rests upon the, not the knowledge, but the doing. You prove what's excellent. That's, a, that's a, a word that speaks of discernment. You have ability to make proper judgments between what is good and evil, between what is good and what is better, between what is better and what is best. You have a moral and ethical sensitivity to make proper judgments in terms of moral discernment, to know the difference between good and and evil. He says, you have all this because you're instructed from the law. You got God's law. And that's what you rest in. And then you're not able, the law not only brings moral excellence, knowing his will, approving what's excellent, but also it enables you to be an instructor of others. So it's not just how it benefits you. Now you turn around and you go around and you teach others God's law. You teach God's, God's ways in terms of the law. And you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind. Of course, Jesus saw these people thought themselves to be guides to the blind and he called them blind leaders of the blind. They themselves were self-deceived. They thought they were guides to others. And Jesus says, do they not both fall into a ditch? And the blind leads the blind. He's going to lead you off a cliff. They're going to lead you to <laughs> fall into a ditch. They're untrustworthy guides. You think yourself to be a light to those that are in darkness, but now lights come into the world, and men prefer the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. The gospel says this is the condemnation. How can you be a light to those that are in darkness when you yourself, are, at least your nation, has been rejectors of the light? The Jewish nation has not embraced the light that's come in the person of of Jesus. Again, you see yourself to be an instructor of the foolish. We're not foolish, we're wise. Thinking of the wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs, teaching the way of wisdom. We have a a corner on the wisdom market. We're instructors of the foolish. We're teachers of children. We have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That's all we need. All we need. We need the law. Law is our salvation. Law is our, 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 our guide. It's our light. It's our hope. It's our confidence. It's, our, uh, it's that which makes us morally excellent. It's that which helps us to show moral excellence to other people and to lead other people to the things we know and the things that we believe. we got it all bound up in the law itself. Of course, the great argument in this letter is that the law makes nothing perfect. Actually, Hebrews makes that argument. But the law doesn't make us right with God. 
The law simply comes and convicts us of our sin. The law gives the knowledge of sin. The law shows how far short we've fallen of the requirements of the law and how far short we've fallen from the glory of God in chapter 3. But then the Jewish hope is resting in the law. They rest in the law. They think the law is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now Paul then addresses them directly. You then. You then. You then. You teachers of others. Do you not teach yourself? Well, you preach against stealing. Do you steal? Again, it's not saying that everyone actually goes out and commits thievery. But again, Jesus spoke about the heart. He spoke about the law extending not just to the external actions, but to the internal desires of the heart. And you who desire the things of others, you who covet your neighbor's property, you who covet your neighbor's wife, you who covet things that belong to others, you are guilty of that crime of stealing, at least within the heart. You say that one must not commit adultery. Uh, Do you commit adultery? And again, it's not saying that all the Jews are committing adultery. Most of them weren't. But yet they tolerated those that did, and they um, had one standard for themselves, and another standard for other people, one standard for strangers, one standard for family members. You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? That's probably the most confusing of these things. In what sense could they be um, robbing temples? Now, in the ancient world, there probably was some sense that the Jews might have been temple robbers because they didn't believe that the temples of the Gentiles were true houses of gods that really existed. They didn't believe in those gods. They didn't believe in those temples. Were they guilty of robbing, robbing those temples? Well, there's some thought that might have been accusations that were leveled against Jews, but I don't think Paul would have embraced those accusations. I think he's likely thinking in terms of what's taught us in the Old Testament about the way the Jews treated their own temple. That they made the temple of God to be a den of thieves, as Jeremiah says in the temple sermon in Jeremiah chapter 7. And Jesus takes up that same imagery in the Gospels when he cast out the uh, sellers of, uh, of, uh, of animals and um, um, the, the tables of the money changers. You're making my father's house uh, Um, a place of merchandise Uh, you're looking to gain your own advantage from the need of animals for sacrifice or the need to change currency from one nation's currency to another and you're making a big profit for yourself maybe even what Paul speaks about who those who make merchandise of the word of God maybe he's thinking of Malachi Malachi uh, mentions those who rob God in the holding back of their tithes and offerings in bringing offerings that are lame and maimed and you know not hardly the best of what they what what they have to bring, they bring God any old thing, any old thing. He says you wouldn't bring these things to your governors, and you're bringing these things to God. Maybe in that sense, but in other words, they're religiously inconsistent in their view, even of their own temple, and what is permitted and impermissible, and they're not giving God the rightful honor that is His due. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Whether it's externally, whether it's internally within the heart, 
whether it's just in your inconsistencies, your toleration of others, consenting with others who do such things. There are hardly examples of what the law demands and many things we all offend to bring in James' assessment of the human condition and many things we all offend. And then Paul brings the quotation from the book of Isaiah. It is written, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It was even said by Nathan to David that uh, because of your sin, you've given the cause for the enemies of God to blaspheme. That's where the law has brought you, as Gentiles. And Paul's whole point of this, again, is, is not to you know, willfully overstate the case, but just to be provocative to the minds of these Jewish people, to come to the place where they can stop relying upon things that can never save them. They can't be relying on the law. They can't be thinking that the law is all that we need. And even in the law, it's not all that we need. And over the summer, we went through that passage in Deuteronomy 10, was it 10.5? Um, let's just turn there. Well, if you're thinking of the law as simply the Ten Commandments, or uh, the moral duties of the commandments, um, I'm sorry, it's 10.12. Yeah. I mean, the, it's in the context of God giving the Ten Commandments earlier on in the chapter. Uh, but in chapter 10 and verse 12, he says, Now Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you? What is the sum of moral excellence? Where is it to be found? Well, it's not just to be found in the law. It's not just to be found in the Ten Commandments. It's not just to be found in the statutes that the Lord has given to Israel. But the requirements of God are greater even than that. What does God require of you? Well, first of all, to fear Him. To fear Him. That's the personal response to the God who revealed Himself on Sinai that struck terror into the heart of those who were there and saw the God who revealed himself in thunder and lightning and storm, that voice from heaven. And though we're not to have the fear of God that brings dread, yet we are to have the fear of God that brings realism to the reality of who God is, that brings a sense of the otherness of God and the transcendence of God and the majesty of God that brings us, if not to have trembling with fear, the fear of dread, to have the fear of reverence. To revere him. And not only to revere him. And again that's a personal reaction to the God who is. Then to walk in all his ways. This God has showed you his ways. Not only his law. But he has showed you his ways. All the ways of the Lord are mercy and grace. Steadfast love. God's ways with his people. Have been ways of forgiveness. It's been ways of of redemption. It's been ways of power that's brought them out of their bondage and brought them unto himself. God's ways are to inform our sense of how we're supposed to live in God's world, following God's ways, imitating God, being holy as he is holy. His ways are to be ways that we are called upon to follow. And then um, 
to love him is, is, is the next thing. And as I pointed out as we did this verse over the summer, it's a central thing. I really think it's the hub of the wheel around which everything else revolves. The central thing is to love him. What is the requirement of God? To love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. It's not just a matter of commandment keeping and whether you could tick, it, tick off this commandment and that commandment and the next commandment and satisfy yourself that you are approved with that commandment. It's the positive love that you're to render to this God for the love with which he has loved you. He's redeemed you. He's brought you to himself. The response of the heart is to be, to be caught up in love to him. And then there then comes keeping the commandments. I'm sorry. There's one other thing before the commandments, is to serve the Lord. Is to serve the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. To wait upon Him, to seek His interest rather than your own. Is to come to the place of desiring the glory of God and the advancement of the interests of God and the kingdom of God in this world. We are called upon to be his servants. Well, to do what? To spread the light of his truth unto the nations. To be a blessing to the Gentiles. In all these ways, Israel was called to be servants of the living God. And then the commandments come in. To keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I'm commanding you this day for your good. It's in your interest uh, to keep these commandments. So don't think it's meritorious, because you're actually achieving your own interests. Um, But all this is part of moral instruction. And one of the things that this moral instruction brings us to the recognition of is that none of us have kept it perfectly. None of us has done it without... uh, without failure, and uh, this fault, and there's... Failure at all points of moral duty because we're sinners. And so God never gave his law to be the way of, of salvation. He gave his law on the backdrop of his redemptive activity. What he did in redeeming Israel from bondage. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of the land of Egypt, out of the house out of the house land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I brought you out of your servitude. I made you to walk erect. I made you to be a people in covenant with me by my own love and power and sovereign grace. And so grace was informed every aspect of God's relationship to Israel of old. And for them to put their reliance upon the law was just simply to have a false, false reliance. Their reliance was to be upon the Lord. Their trust was to be in Him. Again, the lesson day has, um, in faith you will stand. Without faith you will not stand. Paul says, this is a false reliance. This is a false reliance. What about circumcision? We're sons and daughters of, of Abraham. Uh, because at least the nation, the males of our nation, are circumcised. And Paul then goes on to speak about what a true Jew is. What does it mean to be a true Jew? You call yourself a Jew, verse 17. What is a true Jew? What does he consist in? Is he just someone who's been circumcised the eighth day? And Paul says, circumcision indeed, verse 25, is of value. Let's look at this next section. He says, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. 
But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, how do you, what makes you better than the Gentile? What makes you better than the Gentiles? So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward. And you can really use the word merely there too, merely outward and physical. But one is a Jew is a Jew, I'm sorry, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision a matter of the heart by the spirit, not of the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It's part of the argument with respect to circumcision and its necessity is the argument that you really find in the Old Testament itself in two principal places, the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Jeremiah. And again, I think so much of Jeremiah is really rooted in the book of Deuteronomy. I've made that argument before in our evening sermons on the book of uh, Jeremiah. But it was the in the book of Deuteronomy that, that God calls upon the people uh, not just merely to be circumcised externally or physically, but to be circumcised in the foreskin of their hearts. To take away the foreskin of the heart, the hardness of their heart. See, the whole idea of the circumcision of the flesh is you're taking a part of the human body physically that is not observable by anyone. It's, in, it's, it's, it's hidden. It's the private part that's not uh, seen by the eyes of people. The only people that know that they're, they're circumcised are the people that have been raised circumcised, who've been circumcised. So that I, I saw this tic, TikTok, I think it's called, that, that stuff that you sometimes find on uh, YouTube, um, in which one there was an actor that was making um, confession of the fact he always thought himself to have been circumcised as a child, but uh, his wife said he hadn't been, and he, he checked it out with the doctor who ended up agreeing with his wife. So even people who don't know whether they've been circumcised or not, because you know, who makes comparisons? Who, who does that? Who does that? Who looks to see, well, what does it look like? You know, it's, a, it's private. It's not public. It's not something that is out there for every human consumption. It's, it's inward. It's, uh, 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 it's under our clothing. It's not observable. And the heart is the same way. It's the private part of the soul. It's the inward part that's seen by no one. And the whole picture of the taking away the foreskin of the heart is that work of heart circumcision that... Jeremiah speaks about the Deuteronomy speaks about Ezekiel speaks about it in the way of God taking out the heart of stone that hardness of the heart giving a heart of flesh enabling us to walk in his statutes and keep his judgments and it's it's really the picture of God's work inwardly the regeneration of the soul the, the hidden work of God within the heart it's a s- operation of the spirit not just of um, the doctor or the, or the knife or the you know, religious ritual it's the inward working of the heart Paul uses the imagery in chapter 2 of the book of Colossians where he says in him that is in Jesus he says also you were circumcised in Jesus 
also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Made without hands. There's nothing of a surgical procedure on the body. It's something that's made without hands. It's something that's spiritual. It's something that's inward. It's with the circ- uh, it's, it's, it's circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It's by the renewing power of the Spirit of Christ. It's by the regenerating power of the Spirit that you put off the old, that you might put on the new. It's a picture. It's a picture of regeneration. It's a picture of the inward working of God. It's a picture of the power of God coming to raise us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's the picture of being able to walk in newness of life. And there, it, it's, it's not a question of um, Paul saying that uh, circumcision in the new covenant got replaced by, by, by baptism. He's saying what circumcision pointed to is now fulfilled in Jesus. It's now fulfilled in Jesus. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so circumcision, it's been supplanted not by baptism but by the circumcision of the heart. By the inward working of God. Putting away the flesh and putting on the spirit. And Paul says that's something that now in the gospel... It's not just a Jewish thing, it's a Gentile thing as well. And so the uncircumcised in the flesh who keeps the law, again, not perfectly. I think here he's speaking about the keeping of the law with intention and desire. He's speaking of the law in terms of gospel obedience, of looking to serve God in the light of his truth. And the fact that even the Gentile by nature Sometimes trips on the law-keeping because he's a moral creature. What about when the gospel comes and does this work of spiritual regeneration? What about when the gospel comes to the Gentile and there is, in fact, the circumcision of the heart? Those that are physically uncircumcised who keep the law will condemn you who simply have the written code. And you have circumcision, but you break the law. You're not gospel law-keepers because you don't have the power of, of regeneration, because it's not an outward thing, merely. It's not circumcision that's merely outward and physical, but inwardly and spiritual. It's a matter of the heart. He says in verse 29, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Again, that's back to the written code. It's not by the words on on a tablet of stone or the words that are just simply written in a book it's by the power of the spirit then the result is is praise is not from man but from God that's who God acknowledges as a Jew one whom he praises because of his work of grace that he has done in them through spiritual circumcision the circumcision of the heart the working of a new creation now chapter 3 is going to move on and we're not going to have time to do that this morning to address the question, okay then, if this is true, it doesn't have anything to do with anything external. It doesn't have to do with whether you have the law or you don't have the law. 
God now works in, 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 without respect to those things as, um, as essential, as something we trust in or rest in, or something that we think here's where the value lies. It doesn't lie in the external. It lies in the internal. It doesn't lie in the physical. It lies in the spiritual. Well, if that's true, if the new covenant brings this new thing, this new regime that's not outward but inward, not spirit, physical but spiritual, <laughs> what advantage has the Jew then? Why, why do you even say to the Jew first but also to the Greek? Paul's going to give an answer to that. There's value in these things. He says, much every way. Much every way. Chapter 3 and verse 2. And he says to begin with, they're entrusted with the oracles of God. And he's going to have more to say about that subject in chapter 9 as well. But the Jews have advantages. But it's a question when you have advantages. Let's go back to the... I don't know if it followed in the later versions of the Spider-Man franchise, but the original one I saw... I haven't seen these later ones, but the original one that I saw back in the day... Um, Cliff Robertson played Uncle Ned and um, Uncle Ned always told uh, Peter Parker he said with much responsibility I'm sorry with much power comes much responsibility with great power comes much responsibility Uh, again with much power much privilege when God gives something it's an investment in us to take advantage of the things he's blessed us with, to use those things for his glory and honor. It's not just for ourselves. Ultimately, all things are for his glory. And when we take the things of God and we just say they're for me, for nobody else, and for my own advantage and nobody else's, we're just squandering the mercies of God. We're squandering of the goodness of God. Um, we need to take the advantages that we possess uh, for the purposes for which God himself designs those advantages to be given. And that's where the failure came. It's not in that advantages weren't given, but it's advantages weren't used. With much privilege comes much responsibility. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time in your word and pray you'd help us to have a, a sharpened understanding of Paul's argument here in, in Romans. Again, we know that as much we... We don't know that existed in the church that he's writing to. And yet, Lord, those things that have been revealed help us to come to um, clear understandings and uh, to profit from those understandings and to recognize the places you place the premium, premium of importance upon, not on the external but the internal, not upon the flesh but upon the spirit, uh, not upon the things that are seen but the things that are not seen. Um, Help us, Lord, to focus in upon those great realities in which our salvation is found, in which our spiritual welfare is furthered, in which are the things worthy of our reliance, our trust, and our hope. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us as your people, to bless us as we greet one another this morning, to bless us as we enter into the morning hour of worship. We'd ask these mercies through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.